0: Hello, and welcome to the Data Lab podcast. I'm Joanna McKenzie, and I'm Head of Data Science at the Data Lab. So one of our biggest community engagements at the Data Lab is our annual Data Fest. This year, for reasons related to the pandemic and its disruptive effects on events, Data Fest looks very different to its previous incarnation as a two-week community-led celebration of data. We've moved everything online to begin with, but we're also running events throughout the year. We launched in March and our final Data Fest 2021 event will be Data Summit in November. As part of the data science team at the Data Lab, I'm particularly interested in what this means for our Data Tech events. And in fact, there are not one, but three Data Tech events scheduled for Data Fest 2021. The first was held in May 2021 and was a half day fully online event with the theme, Our Future. One of our keynote speakers at Data Tech, Our Future was Dr. Ellen Friedman. While her background is a doctorate in biochemistry from Rice University, Ellen has considerable experience working with data and currently works as principal technologist for HPE Esmeral at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. She has a particular focus on large-scale data analytics and AI and machine learning at scale. She's also an international speaker and author with several books available, including the recent AI and analytics at scale. So welcome to the podcast, Ellen.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me here.
0: It's, it's a pleasure. Um, so I'd like to start with talking a little bit maybe just about yourself. So maybe you could start with how you ended up working in the data field at all.
1: Well, <clears throat> working with data is something I've done Uh, pretty much throughout my professional career. But working with large-scale data, large-scale computing, uh, AI, and machine learning, which is what I do now, is something I wouldn't have predicted. It's certainly not uh, where I started, and it wasn't uh, where I imagined uh, getting to at this point. So like many people, careers uh, can take some zigzag shapes in very interesting ways. And I think that it's a matter of uh, there are some common themes that maybe drive us throughout our our career choices and things we're interested in, but how they're packaged, how they, the opportunities that show up uh, can be very surprising. And they certainly have been for me. So uh, just a a, a quick and and zigzag, but fairly short line from you mentioned uh, a doctorate in biochemistry. I did start off as a uh, laboratory research scientist, uh, focusing, uh, especially after my doctorate, my postdoctoral work in working with molecular biology. Uh, i worked first in always in very basic uh, systems uh, we were working it was a long time ago we were working out basically how genes are turned on and off how they're regulated in tissue specific ways and uh, i also studied at uh, at a molecular level a very basic process in reproduction uh, for sexually reproducing organisms called meiosis so i did this working with uh, a plant system uh, just because that was a good Uh, research system, not because I was specifically interested in plants at that time. Uh, My uh, doctoral work had been in a bacterial system because that's a good system for studying very basic uh, uh, gene function. Um, But then I became interested in plants in themselves and I I changed, I became a a professor at a uh, research uh, university in Southern New Mexico. So I found myself moving from uh, the University of California uh, being right by the Pacific ocean to living in the high desert in Southern uh, New Mexico. felt like I'd gone to another planet. And we were doing uh, some basic research on plant genes uh, regulation, but also working for a plant genetic engineering laboratory where we were developing new crop plants uh, that could live in very dry and and arid uh, agriculture. So uh, that was... You know pretty much the shape of the laboratory research, and at that point, I after doing that for some years, I left and I went to another state, Colorado, and I worked for a nonprofit um, that was uh, working off of large uh, uh, government grants in education uh, to write national level uh, curricula in in the basic sciences, mostly in in biology and genetics, uh, mostly for our our end of what we call public school or high school and, and beginning uh, college years, and I did that for several years. And then at that point, uh, my life changed dramatically. I needed to be a caregiver for elderly parents who lived 1,400 miles away, and so I was going back and forth. And so I had to have work uh, for a few years there that uh, was flexible that I could carry with me. So I began doing a uh, uh, Similar work, communication in the sciences and for the public and for textbooks and so forth, but working as an independent person, not directly for an institution, where I could carry work with me. And I did that for several years. And at that point, I thought I would go back into more formal work in my own trained fields after I, I didn't, didn't need to be doing that. But perhaps incautiously, I accepted an invitation to be a co-author on what was actually a very technical book um, about uh, machine learning. It was an open source project called Apache Mahoot, part of the Apache Software Foundation, uh, the first really large library of a very large scale uh, uh, library for machine learning and, and uh, large scale data. And I thought I was being invited in just to help the some of the other authors who hadn't written books before think about, because I'd written a lot, is how do you construct a book? You know, how do you edit? How do you organize your ideas? And so I sort of interviewed, really for, for a third of the book, uh, interviewed one of the authors, Ted Dunning, enough that I could understand what he needed to say. His section was on classification. Uh, and at that point, helped him organize the book seven or eight chapters that he was writing. And then he said, okay, why don't you go ahead and write the first one? And I said, what? (laughs) And he said, no, 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 that's an introductory chapter. Why don't you go ahead and write that one? And so we co-wrote those chapters and I literally um, would would write what I call the connective tissue. so a theme, certainly through all of the communication that I've done in the sciences, has always been around information and data, just because that's been my interest, whether it was genetic information, in this case, different kinds of information. But also I seem to be gravitate where I used to do some writing for NASA uh, and for our National Ocean Service as well. So gravitating toward translating extremely um, technical, and research material into a form that that essentially anyone could digest. So people outside of the field, but also people introductory field, also people who are specialists in the field, but who need to get down to the the absolute essence of what matters in a field. So that's what I call the connective tissue. And um, somebody asked me, does this mean I'm trying to, to dumb it down and I said, that is, thank you. That, <laughs> I saw a reaction because I can actually see uh, see Joanna on this uh, this recording. Uh, the, uh, it's the last thing I would ever do. Uh, I, I just detest that expression. And I said, no, what I'm doing is smartening it down. I'm trying to, to get to the, the essence of what matters, the pivotal ideas, the pivotal, pivotal points, not generalizations, but the pivotal points in any field that matter and then the the details in more or less depth get stacked on top of that so i've done it in a number of ways but doing this in this uh, book about machine learning uh, when i did not have a background in computing was the biggest reach for me and I, i did it it worked very very well and then i thought i would go back to writing things that i had been writing before in biochemistry and genetics and advanced genetics but suddenly there was a giant whooshing sound, and the number of requests to do more communication in this field around large-scale data, around AI, around machine learning just kept coming. So it was less a conscious decision than I just kept saying yes to the next and the next offer. And that was about uh that was about 12, 12 years ago. So I've done that, you know, stayed in this field and I find it enormously exciting. So that may be too detailed of an answer to your question, but that's what I meant about some some strange zigzags, and yet there's been a commonality in terms of uh, the idea of uh, working around data, what data can tell us, whether it's it's laboratory research data, historical data, medical historical data, and then now this, in, in this field of large-scale data, and, and I work for right now for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise in a, a, a division of theirs, a software division called Esmeral, and we build foundational uh, technology uh, software for handling data in large-scale systems that, for me, is fascinating because it is so foundational. It means I can be talking with people who are working in almost any field. And the exciting things that people are doing, whether it's, it's medicine, large-scale industry, agriculture, you know, business, financials, whatever it is, uh, the, the, the shape of the problems are actually quite similar. So it lets me have the fun of, of hearing what's going on in a lot of different sectors.
0: Thank you very much for that. It was really interesting to hear how your journey progressed like that. It's amazing how that serendipity theme that you mentioned in your keynote kind of shows up its head in your career path as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd like to to it, 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 it. Some some people have done this much, and I think much better than I have. But uh I'm thinking of a, a woman uh, uh that I knew when she was a graduate student, and she's. She's uh, has worked for a big International Corporation for years. And had such an interesting career. And I said using her as an example, uh, it, you, you, it's luck is a big thing, but the, what makes luck work is if you're prepared prepared and brave enough to recognize an opportunity and take advantage of it. And Absolutely. Uh, she that's some interesting twists in her career as well.
0: That's excellent. I like the idea of the connective tissue as well as a a connector, because when you're communicating, that's very much what you're doing. You're drawing out connections between what the reader already knows or what the person you're speaking to already knows and helping them use that to build new knowledge. Um, I think it also applies to some of the themes that came through in your keynote, because if we build really good connective tissue, we get a much better support for data projects more generally. Do you think that's that's a fair statement.
1: Thank you for saying that. You know, I hadn't really consciously made that connection between what I was calling connective tissue and in the work and the communication that I do. I don't know why I didn't connect it. Uh, <clears throat> but to this basic idea that I think absolutely one of the biggest challenges in data science, in any level of data science, in making it actually work in practical ways in the real world is putting it correctly in context, using domain knowledge appropriately, and that's at both the front end and the take action ends of projects. And to do that, you absolutely have to have communication. And you're right, this connective tissue is a big big piece of how that communication uh, can work. I think that this idea of communication in uh, data science and AI, People think of that as being. I heard this term and it kind of made me laugh, but they call it a soft skill. Maybe they don't say that as much around software, but anyway, it's a soft skill. And it—it it certainly it feels different. It sounds different than people who have the 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 deep and sophisticated mathematics, the statistics, the knowledge of algorithms, and you know this huge experience uh, working with uh, with code and and engineering. But it all of that. If it's not connected well to context, to stakeholders, to whoever has to take action on the insights that are generated, it's as though you've built this absolutely beautiful uh, and very complex engine. And people say, Is it working? And they test it and they can hear, you know, the engine, oh, it's worrying, you know, it's just running beautifully. Of course, it's not actually in gear. <laughs> It's just spinning. <laughs> it's not connected to anything, but if you just look at the engine, it's it's running great. And then sometimes people come back and say, Well, you know, does data science does does, does AI really fulfill the promise? And they say, well, well, I don't know that people are getting value. Well, if your beautiful AI machine is is running not connected into the real world and the way it needs to to have an effect, then of course you're not gaining the value from the thing that you've built. So, yes, the connected tissue and the communication, I think, is absolutely essential. And it may be a soft skill, but it's a valuable one and one that takes some conscious effort to build, doesn't just just spring out naturally from people who have very different backgrounds.
0: I think almost the first layer of error in thinking about how you build skills and communication um, stems from thinking that communication is something that data scientists do to their clients. communicate out the results they communicate out what their analysis is but the second level the actual advanced level of communication is when you start to understand that it's as much about bringing in new knowledge and information from other spaces
1: absolutely absolutely um just touching on that in two different ways i think whether it's data science or anything else i think the most effective communication is it, most of us are trying to communicate something because we because we want to bring something about, and I always say if to also help people who are doing talks or whatever writing a book, say what do you want to have happen as a result of the talk that you're about to give or the, the article that you're about to write? What do you want to have happen? I mean, the first thing people think of—they're giving a talk and standing in front of a large audience—is they don't want to make an idiot of themselves. You know, they, they don't want to embarrass themselves. So I get that, but. But stepping back from it, you're doing it. What would you like to happen after the audience walks out of the room? You know, do you want them to to just think of something? Do you want to plant an idea? Do you want them to ask a question of somebody else? Do you want them to actually, you know, take some specific action? And then once you know what that is, say, you know, what, what is their world at the moment that they step into the room? Because it's all about the audience. And how do you build a bridge from them back to, to you and back to the content that you're to the whatever it is that, that you need to provide them for them to take that action? So I think the same thing, you, you're absolutely on target with this. Uh, we can understand why people in data science might think the communication, the challenge is their ability to, to talk to people who have a different background to avoid jargon, which is important, to be able to say things in a way that are understandable, all of which is absolutely essential. But that's only a piece of it. It's their ability to draw out information from other people, their ability to to hear it and to understand what that other language actually means. And we just came across this. I was doing a talk uh, week before last uh, with a woman who's a data scientist. She also works for for HPE. Uh, She's based in India, and she's doing some work with an an NGO called, uh, or she was reporting on, I don't think she's doing this directly, but she's doing some, uh, she was reporting on some work with an NGO called uh, Digital Green and they are working with a, a, a large and, and new initiative that's part of the Linux Foundation called AgStack. All this is about making large scale uh, data sets available to multiple audience. And she's talking about how do you take this very complicated and sophisticated information, build models, take those insights and make them available to, uh, to, to small farmers of whom there are hundreds of millions, but they're producing a tremendous amount of the, of the food supply. And how do you make that information available? And, but part of what she talks about is also how do you collect their information? They're, they're incredibly valuable in that they are experienced with the work that they're doing. And so they become domain experts in their, in their domain. And we certainly see that if, Somebody is is building AI, working with uh, 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 sophisticated medicine, brain surgery. The data scientist doesn't expect to fully understand brain surgery. The brain surgeon shouldn't fully have to understand how to you know build these algorithms to interpret, uh, uh, say, an MRI. But they do that. That information has to go in both directions. So it's absolutely essential to make it's the conversation that has to work and the conversation has to not be at a superficial level has to be at an understandable level but not a superficial level because the details really do matter as well
0: i think that's absolutely correct um i also think it's um One of the things that's quite interesting about it is that when we're talking about data, we are talking about a flow of information. We're talking about digitized information, essentially. And it's easy as a data scientist or an analyst working with this data all the time to get caught up in the story that the data tells you. Um, But if you're leaving yourself laser-focused on that digitized information, you're forgetting about all the other things that you're not catching in that digitized data set. And that leaves you open to... Poor communication, not not getting the right conclusions coming out, to building a tool that no one ever wants to use. Um, so it's it's just almost almost another data set. All that encoded information that human beings have.
1: <laughs> Very much so, and even with the digital information, um, ha- does it really represent what you think it represents? Not just, you know, has it been cleaned up and has it been, have you extracted features appropriately? All of that's certainly true. But even at the start, how was it collected? Did the person who, who labeled it, did they mean what you think they mean, you know, or are you using it in the right way? And then if you are, does it represent what all of you, it, it may be correctly Collected, it may be correctly labeled, but is it going to tell you what you want? Um, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the keynote, but I've used this example because I think it's a very clean one. I know this uh, uh, from people who were uh, building uh, recommendation engines in the, the early, just pre, pre, pre-public YouTube days of streaming video. And how do you make recommendations of what people want? So in building recommenders, uh, you want to look at data that represents a behavior where the behavior somehow represents preferences of people. So that's a very that's a hard one to say. Have you got it right? Because it's not just, you know, it's not. Basic physics. How do you measure a preference of a of a person? How does that change over time? But what behaviors uh, represent that? And this particular case, I've used as an example because it's so simple. They were building a recommendation engine, and the the building, the algorithm, the use of data, the data set was clean. You know, building the recommender, everything was done correctly, um, it, but it wasn't wasn't producing effective recommendations. They, they weren't they weren't matching people's preferences. And then what they realized is that they were using behavior of watching which titles for videos people clicked on. Because you say, if you click on that title, you must be interested in it. That must be a preference. No, it meant that people liked the title. It didn't mean they liked the video. So they switched the data. So the the data wasn't mislabeled or anything. It was it was clean data. It was what people thought it was, but it didn't really represent preference. That behavior of what title you click on doesn't represent your your viewing interest. They switched it to watching to looking at who watched the first 30 seconds of a video, and suddenly the effective the effectiveness of the recommendation just just changed entirely. So you're right, there, it is a, an entirely different data set to understand the, the humans, <laughs> other behaviors as well, but the, the humans are a big one uh, around the data. And, and and certainly if we're doing things, where we're looking at human behavior uh, to make sure that the, the data that we're using uh, as features tell us what we think it tells us about the person's behavior.
0: It's really interesting like yourself i have a background in science rather than in computer science or anything along those lines and um, i've got a physics degree and one thing that i've noticed moving from a science space into a data space is that very often in data we are using accidental data you know it's, it's things that are passively created through actions ha- user clicks, perhaps, or sensors that just happen to be installed. Whereas in a science space, you would curate your data set. You would make sure you had exactly the right information to to test the hypothesis that you had in mind. It's a very different mindset and it does leave us in the data sphere, more open to those gaps in data, accidentally choosing poor proxies for the information we're actually looking for, those sorts of errors. Does that chime with your experience?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think where there's a little bit of overlap is um, I've also done some work with people in the medical field. I used to teach at a medical school. And uh, I had training in a basic science, not quite as clean and basic as physics. I always feel like there's this hierarchy <laughs> you know, physics, chemistry, biochemistry, biology, genetics, and then it gets medicine, and then it's getting very messy. Uh, now, physicists the medical- would generally agree. <laughs>
0: but only cuz you put them at the top
1: yeah. and, then, and then of course the math the mathematicians say you know we are all we're all fairly clueless but everything's built in the mathematics but in in medicine you i mean certainly there's medical research but a lot of a lot of medicine is having to 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 deal with exactly the problem that you that you mentioned you're you're looking at patient histories you're looking at human behavior that, that the, it wasn't set up as an experiment. We're saying let's look over the last 20 years and find uh, factors that correlate to certain uh, disease or to certain health patterns and so forth. And it's incredibly messy, and 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 even messier because you're getting into personal data as well. Um, so it's unfortunate. You don't. It's it's much harder to do a clean experiment. It's much harder uh, to know what your data is telling you. It's much harder to have the clean data set that you want. But the fact is, it's also exciting because it means through these wonderful techniques in data science, even with those difficult data sets, you can still glean a a lot of of information, uh, certain correlations, if not causations out of things. And that uh, can begin to point you in the directions that you want to be able to set up uh, experiments where where. It's, it's tighter and, and cleaner. So it's frustrating, but at the same time, it opens the doors to just a, a wide uh, number of things that you can ask questions about that the, the, the hard sciences don't let us dabble around in quite that way.
0: You mentioned at the be- uh, beginning of your introduction that uh, when you started working in biochemistry, some of the systems were quite primitive because it was a few years back and I think everything has changed so quickly certainly in my yeah. undergraduate years I was taught some excel and a little bit of c standard c yeah. not c plus plus my first programming language is fortran it's amazing to think how far we've come since then but it does make me think what's it going to be like in five or ten years time ten years time from now what do you think the next developments are in the data space
1: oh that's a really interesting question and I don't know that I have a good answer for it. So I'm gonna give you my, I'm sorry, slightly long-winded, but as a split answer. It, especially when I was doing research in the basic sciences, uh, a challenge I had, and, and I, I finished school quite young, and you know, as a young woman in the field, it was challenging to be a woman in the field at all and to be young and so forth and get people to take you seriously. But one of the challenges that I had is I had incredibly good basic instinct. And I would see things 10 to 15 years before the field would see it. And and if you are a powerful person running your own lab, that's a good time frame. But if you're a young person getting permission to pursue ideas that other people haven't yet understood is the way to go can be terribly frustrating. I used to laugh. I said I need to bring my my time horizon in closer <laughs> so that I can convince people it's the, the right way to go. But in this field, in many ways, I think I'm more an observant or communicator than than the person out there. So I'm I'm not, I maybe don't have as long a a time horizon. So that's my my disclaimer, but I'm going to answer your question anyway. Um, I think that what's happening now it is there is a similarity to. uh, I mean, it it wasn't the 19th century when I was doing this work, but it was was a long time, and there were actually no dinosaurs alive on the earth at that time. That's a relief. (laughs) Yes kind of feels like it it wasn't quite that long ago. Of course, the year before COVID feels like it was that long ago as well. So we have have kind of a confused timeline in our lives right now. But I was working in a field, and certainly in molecular biology, which to outsiders saying molecular biology or biochemistry, it sounds like the same thing. Inside, it was like, oh, you made this huge switch from biochemistry to molecular biology. So it's very, very different. But molecular biology is a very new field. And so it's hugely exciting because things that were being figured out and the techniques that were being figured out, how do you actually break genes apart? How do you Read sequence. How do you manipulate sequence, and and you know how are genes being regulated? There were just huge and and fundamental things, and they were hard to figure out. But it was happening very fast. It's very exciting. So the field was moving and changing. Our, our knowledge of it and what we could do was changing very rapidly. I feel like that's what the last ten or fifteen years and. Obviously, with the filter of I've been doing this for 10 years (laughs) in this field of of data science and AI and so forth. But I feel like so many of the techniques, big changes happen in techniques, big changes happen in in data, certainly in, in overall public awareness of the importance of data uh, uh technologies such as the one I work with, which is HP Esmeral Data Fabric, is a foundational software uh, for storing and moving and managing extremely large data sets and ones that can be scaled very, very, and we're talking about massive amounts of data as well as smaller amounts. So you should have that flexibility to go either direction. So the the technology such as the data fabric being developed so they have ways to handle all of this in practical ways, ways to move data from one place to another. It's been very exciting to watch those develop. And so to me, the parallel with the molecular biology after those big developments, tremendous amount has been learned, but so it changed, but it didn't change in the same way. It's like you had all of the fundamental pieces in place and now you could really fill that out as a rich understanding of so many different areas and begin to really uh, have, it, have those uh, the pioneering days of both building the techniques and understanding the basics pay off. And I feel like that's where we are with data today, we have a, a better public awareness. We have more data sets and more data sets becoming available. We have uh, technology such as data fabric for handling data. We have a, a gazillion wonderful tools and new ones being developed uh, for doing machine learning, doing AI, doing analysis, doing visualization, doing all of that you know, together on these big data sets. So I feel like the next five years becomes part of the, the let's fill it out now, let's, we've got this, let's really do something with it. And so it's, it's certainly people will continue to develop new algorithms, they'll continue to develop new technologies, new software for, for working with data. But I don't feel that that's so much the big changes there as the what are we going to find out about the world, about societies, about how we can interact with data and, and take action? How can we fight diseases? How can we deal with with tropical disease? How can we help agriculture? What do we do about transportation? So I think the big changes are going to make the, for everybody who's ever read the Wizard of Oz, we say, you know, the wizard behind the curtain. The, the behind the curtain thing are the the, the data scientists and the technology and the data engineers and all the people who are actually doing this work. But what it will look like is not that. It will look like the what have we found out suddenly we understand better how how cities and traffic systems work suddenly we understand the interaction between uh, a a climate and what's happening with a a a micro farm in in Africa and you know what can we do about that so I think that's where you're going to see the huge changes is in the the kind of payoff of what we learn.
0: That's really interesting I think I think I agree with you in quite a lot of what you've said there. I think you're right that the pace of change in technology has become almost an enabling movement rather than any real change. The capabilities haven't changed so much and the techniques haven't changed so much. A lot of expanding it out to people with different levels of knowledge and making it more accessible, making it able to... um, handle different data sets at scale um, and in all lots of different environments. But do you know where I think there might be another development and that is the the type of data teams that we build to deal oh, with that? Yes.
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, you really hit a nerve on that one. (laughs) Um, that is going, that is already changing and that is going to change. And, and I, and I think two or three years from now, people look back and they won't even see it as a change. It's like, it will just be so normal. And so, Data scientists will not be these, well, they'll still be experts in specialized and in specialized knowledge. I don't want to any way diminish that. And it's it's not like they're stuck, they've discovered everything they can discover about their own craft. Absolutely not, it's gonna to continue to change. But the nice thing is it's not going to be changing in isolation. And suddenly there are people around them who's, who are developing better data skills better data awareness. From the the data engineers, uh, we see this this, uh, great shift in people who are uh, classically working with or trained as developers and taking those developer skills and and now adding greater understanding of data and suddenly becoming data engineers and, and, and a blurring edge between What is a data engineer? What is a data scientist? I mean, it really becomes a a spectrum instead of completely separate roles. And then moving that out to the people that they need to interact with who have the contextual knowledge, the domain knowledge. Uh, I want to emphasize domain knowledge doesn't just mean people with very highly specialized knowledge, say in, in, in medicine or physics or <laughs> deep, deep sea exploration, people who run a business, uh, people who run online services, they're experts in their business. Uh, they're experts in what needs to happen within that context. And that comes into play at the other end where, um, as I said, for, for data science, for AI to have impact, um, it, it needs to be connected to action and practical action for whatever, in, unless you're doing this as a research thing, it needs to be connected to your research goals, but in 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 kind of out in the real world, out in the wild, uh, you need a way to take action. Then action might be taken by a machine, might be taken by a human, whatever, might some combination, it's whatever is appropriate. But again, you need people with that domain knowledge to understand how to connect the insights you know, back into uh, effective action, and so you need communication between the data science team and the out non-data science team, as we've already touched on. You need communication within the data science team, and then what you're you're suggesting right now, I think, uh, Joanna, is this idea that the data science team is not just the expert in the algorithm, but it's a whole group of people and and multiple experts because. Um, expertise, uh, that's a lovely thing about this field is, uh, as people begin to realize if you're doing data science in, in financial industry, a lot of the shape of the problems are the same problems that people face who are trying to make, say, uh, do market segmentation for marketing, uh, for people who are doing predictive analysis for a large industry, trying to understand, when to do maintenance. The The shape of the problems are not that different. And so uh, taking advantage of somebody else's expertise uh, can be a huge thing. And so I think these cross skill teams are incredibly uh, powerful.
0: Absolutely. I also think um, if you think back a little bit of time, maybe even only 10 or 20 years, um, there were programmers and maybe software engineers, but there weren't an awful lot of specialists around about them. Um, And now of course you look at the development space um, in the virtual world and you have your programmers and software engineers, but you also have your user interface designers, people Mm -hmm. who specialize in that. You have the people who can, manage the user experience you have people who are specialists in web design only and people who are specialized in, in mobile or games designs and i wonder if one of the developments we'll see in the next few years is that the data space will take on that same momentum where people will find their niche the space where they can just be really good at it and develop in there i'm quite excited to see how that might play out in practice to be honest
1: i like that idea because uh, i mean it sounds counter to the sense of 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 uh, needing people across the whole field, but I think it's not counter to it. I think becoming very good at the 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 narrower, the thing that you do, do that really well, is important because these are all difficult tasks and they're constantly changing. I mean you're working with data, the the world changes. It's not a static thing. Um and the techniques for for exploring it change um, so it's it's really helpful to have people who become very experienced that's that's uh, very valuable in particular areas as you say within data or the the analogy back to development uh for user interface and so forth and which is still an issue here as well <laughs> but it, we don't want people to be isolated and and it's, these humans are still humans and so everybody's got a buzzy word, catchy phrase for what they mean by things. So I talk about data ops and that means different things to different people and people want to call data ops, no ML ops, no this ops, everybody's got an ops. Um, but <laughs> what I find interesting in it, and I'll use data ops as the example, is take, take what you've just described where you have people who become very expert in certain areas of data you have somebody else who knows how to deal with the, the processing and engineering of, of large data set itself for data logistics. How do you move data? How do you, how do you do data versioning? How do you build the algorithm? Maybe that's a different person. How do you connect it to human action? How do you evaluate it? How do you deal with it and get them saying yes, it's that or no to these projects. But when those people, all feel like they're in their their space, their expertise, their separate department. Then when the data scientist asks the domain expert or the data expert for information, when the data engineer wants something from the data scientist, people feel like they're asking or granting a favor. And they'll do it, but it's different. The focus, the, the willingness to do it and even sometimes the funding to do it is different than when you build a team. And that's what I mean by data ops, that is a cross-functional team. And so all of those different people with different roles and different expertise over a period of time, feel like they are all on the same team because they're all trying to accomplish a particular goal and they know They know what success would look like. They know the steps that need to happen to get there. And so they're all pulling in the same direction. And so, of course, you know, having the data engineer work with the the UI expert, having the data engineer work with the domain expert, all of them working with the people who are handling the algorithms, of course, they're all doing their piece, but they're all pulling in the same direction. And just It's something as as small as saying it takes away that mentality of, you know, okay, I'll make time and do this for you. It's like, I'll use my expertise and do this for the project that we're all making happen. And we find that people who build their team, their concept of team that way, they stay much more focused. Communication is better. Uh, Morale is better, productivity tends to be better for all different kinds of reasons, and even the practical ones of of how do you handle uh, charge back, how do you track, you know, project expenses uh, when they're coming from what look like different departments, but when they're all related to a single project, that becomes much easier to manage within large enterprise.
0: Absolutely. It's nice to see that we're thinking along the same lines in some of these spaces. Um, Perhaps that's because we've got a similar background in um, science. Um, I think we're kind of...
1: We're we're both just absolutely right. We're going to rule the world. That would be the other interpretation. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Between us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, between us. (laughs) See, we have a (laughs) team.
0: Brilliant. So I think we should probably start to wrap up now. It's been really interesting talking to you. Just to finish up, I would like to ask you just one last question. What would you like to see change about the way we approach data and data projects in in the in the world just now?
1: Two things. One, I'm not even going to dig into, but I'm just going to say, I want people to take these projects seriously, and what I mean by that is to understand the huge potential value but also the seriousness of impact of what they're doing working with large data sets and on the whole side of really looking at the ramification you know looking at at the ethical sides of of what we do it's very very important and that's a whole topic in itself so be aware that there is is power in this and and look at the effect of of what you're doing And you know, use it for good. I know that sounds silly, but I mean that very sincerely. So you know, if there's a single thing I want, it's that. But that's a that's a huge topic. So I'm going to also then just say something I would like to see happen, and I think it is happening, but it's a down in the more much more pragmatic side of it. I want people to recognize that complexity. Say the complexity of a model the complexity of of algorithms is is not, doesn't map directly to success. There are situations where you need very complex models and, and very complex approaches, but there are other situations where simplicity is incredibly powerful and, you know, kind of an Occam's razor approach that if you go for, don't make things more complicated than they need to be. Understand that simple, you know, you're not doing this for bragging rights. I mean, maybe you are, but do that as your hobby. uh, Recognize the the power that is in the data itself, the power that is in setting these things up in appropriate ways, recognizing what you can do with data, recognizing how powerful all of these things become in terms of impact when you connect them in well, and, and make the model only as complicated as it needs to be. Simple is good. And if you can do it in a simple way, that's better than doing it in a complicated way. And I think that that's a, a realization that can have a, a big change in how people work.
0: Dr. Ellen Friedman, thank you very much for your time this afternoon or the morning as it is in your time zone. Um, and I hope to speak to you again. Thank you. Thank you so much,
1: Dr. Mackenzie. It was a pleasure.